Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about architecture criticism. On this episode, I am joined by the architecture critic of the New York Times, Michael Kimmelman. Prior to this role, which he began in 2011, he served as a chief art critic for the paper and in 2007 created the Abroad column for the Times, writing about culture and political and social affairs while based in Berlin. Over the last decade, Michael has really expanded the scope and coverage of his architecture criticism post, moving between journalism and activism and criticism and covering topics as diverse as public housing and community development and infrastructure and urban design. I've been reading Michael for nearly as long as he's been in this job, so I was really curious to talk to him about how he got started writing about architecture and how his background writing about art how that does or does not influence his current work. We also talk about the role of the critic, especially at a place like the New York Times and the sort of uh, uh, reach that he has in that position. And we also talk about how architecture and design discourse has changed over his tenure. Remember, if you like the show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, if you would like to see it continue, if you want to see more of it in the world, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening. And here is me with Michael Kimmelman. I wanted to begin this conversation when you became the architecture critic at the New York Times in 2011. I'd like to talk about the work that you did before, but I think it's interesting to start there. And when I was preparing for this, I found a, an article that The Observer published about your appointment. And it basically was a bunch of bloggers and commenters who were complaining about your appointment and how this signaled the end of architecture criticism. The, the New York Times doesn't you know, take architecture criticism seriously. Uh, and and I, I bring this up not to to make you feel bad or to remind you of <laughs> of that. I realized this was like the height of, of blogging where everybody had an opinion. But what struck me was how, how dated that article felt um, and how you kind of have proven wrong a lot of these ideas around how to what it means to write about architecture and how the New York Times treats architecture writing. But it got me thinking about how that appointment happened. Was this a job that you were after? Were you in, were, were you trying to become the architecture critic? Was this a goal of yours? Or how did this, how did, how did through these circumstances, did you become the architecture critic? <laughs> Well, first of all, I, I'm, uh, I, I understand that reaction uh, from, um, from people at that time uh, because, look, I had not been uh, writing about architecture for the time, so I'd been doing other things. And, um, and more than that, I had for, for many years been the art critic of the right. Times. Um, and so I think that there was a concern that um, I not only wasn't some... I mean, I had early in my life been uh, writing and editing a magazine called ID and I'd, yeah. I'd been the architecture critic of um, uh, before, but this was not my at times life. So I, I think there was a concern partly because at that moment, 
especially, there was, I think, within the sort of architectural universe, a concern that architecture had increasingly come to be talked about as if it were a sort of branch of, you know, sculpture, um, mm-hmm. and that um, if they were going to appoint uh, the art critic as the architecture critic, then this seemed even more sort of detached <laughs> right. from uh, really the not not just reality, but also the the, the true sort of uh, complexity and and importance of architecture. So I I got that. I mean, it, it of course had nothing to do with my intentions and and my uh, and why I took the job, but I I had been. Um, so I, you know, I don't know where exactly to begin, but effectively, I, I had fallen into my job as an art critic when I was very at, at the times as when I was very young and never quite intending to be um, to be the art critic, and I was for a long time sort of finding ways to write, um, uh, not to write around that job, but to expand both mm-hmm. my, you know, uh, my ability to write in different forms and at different lengths and for different people. Um, but also to obviously write about other things. Um, and eventually I persuaded the editors uh, at the times that I um, that I needed a, not just a break, but to do something quite different. My original interest in, in um, art and culture did go back to, uh, really to my childhood, honestly, because I mm. grew up in a very lefty household in New York City in which, you know, so far left that my father was convinced that the New York Times was run by the CIA. So if you... <laughs> If you uh, if you read it closely, you could decode the sort of secrets of the right, you know, the establishment right. that was, was ruling the country. And um, and he also read uh, my mother did as well a lot of political journals and a lot of um, literary journals. And and I had the sense when I was young that there was a kind of um, there was a kind of eth- that doing journalism was an ethical occupation. That becoming a writer and contributing to a public conversation was was an important and healthy thing to do. And I think even his obsession with the New York Times made me think that that was a useful place to be. Um, and so when I ended up um, studying uh, history and then going on and doing um, writing about architecture and then studying art history and doing architectural history as well, I, I my interest was really in social history and um, in linking culture to a, a broader range of social um, political and historical issues. So, you know, I, I felt that when I was pushing against my um, job as the art critic, uh, which of course was an enormous privilege and pleasure um, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I, I, I never took it uh, for granted or wasn't grateful, but still when I, when I pushed against it, it was, my feelings were that there were other things to write about as a big world and uh, and in some ways, I didn't want to be lost in the bubble of the art world, which I never felt was really my home. So I went to Europe. Uh, this is what I persuaded my bosses, uh, <laughs> that I would go to Europe, base myself there, and write from there broadly, uh, including in the Middle East and other places, about the intersection of culture uh, with politics and social affairs. Um, and that was just a dream. It was a wonderful job. Um and I did that for a while and would have continued to do it and even contemplated moving to Asia to do it. Oh, interesting. But, um, which was, um, which added layers of complication really for geographical reasons. It's just so big 
the doing stories created a whole other set of challenges uh, in Europe and the Middle East. But um, but I got a call from um, from the editor uh, of that department that runs um, the culture department is called at the Times, uh, and asking um, and also from the um, the executive editor of the Times if I would um, be interested in being the architecture critic. It was not something I had um, sought. It wasn't ever something that I had um, uh, asked to do. Um, and though I'd been interested in it and was happy to have an opportunity to write about architecture, but I, I came out of the blue. The reason that I um, said yes to that and decided, it partly was personal. My family, my wife was, and our children were, sort of ready to come back age-wise. <laughs> yeah, it it yeah. just made sense. But but also because I felt, um, to get back to my original point about your, your bloggers and that article <laughs> that you're referring to, <laughs> that, you know, there are certain moments uh, in, in public conversations when um, there, uh, a, one sees this in all fields of study, but it's certainly true in, um, in areas of cultural study that, uh, there are times when certain lines of criticism or uh, theory or whatever sort of begin to run aground, and and the pendulum swings again, um, and so that that there is an appetite and a, a possibility, really, of having another conversation. Um, and I felt that the kinds of things that I would want to do um, and that I could do in this job from that. In, you know this incredibly privileged um, position that I'm uh, that I'm that I hold is to sort of um, shift the conversation to open up other ways of talking about the field, um, and not just the field of architecture, but opening up architecture and mm-hmm. the conversation around it uh, right. to to much broader issues. I think you know had I done had I been offered this same position years earlier, I'm not sure there would have been that same appetite or possibility. Timing is important, I think. So the, I mean, you know, the sort of funny part of your, you're digging up that thing is uh, while I totally understand um, uh, what the fear was, um, not only did I share the concerns (laughs) that those people had, but of course I ended up doing, I, I would say almost, uh, 180 degrees, the opposite right. of what right. was anticipated. Um, right. Even though I was trained as and and um, you know um, and I'm in love with and interested in all the formal and material aspects of architecture and architectural criticism that are traditionally part of the job, um, I felt that there was a larger um, conversation to be had. So that's that's really what happened there. Yeah, and I mean. Like I said, that's why I brought that piece up is because I, I do. I, I also can understand those fears also, but I, I, I see it the opposite way where you did kind of go in the other direction. And, and the reason I asked about whether you were interested in this job or, or kind of going after this job is you mentioned in just now that you became an art critic sort of by accident. You kind of fell into that. And in all the interviews and, and things I I read to prepare for this, I've heard you say versions of that before, but you never said that about this job, your current job. Hmm. Um, 
But then this other piece that you were talking about, about going to Berlin and, and really this interest in connecting culture and politics, to me, that seems like architecture, like architecture is the perfect nexus of that. And obviously I'm biased as, as a designer and somebody who, who studied design that I see design as the great intersection of, of culture and politics. And I've talked to many design writers who have said, oh, I studied design or I, I write about design because I'm really just interested in everything. And design right. is a, a lens to look into everything. And I'm kind of, I guess the question that I'm getting to here is, I'm curious how you think about that. When you did take this job, did you see this as a way to kind of continue what you were trying to do in Berlin and what you what you were doing in Berlin, but perhaps with a, a focus or a lens on top of that? Well, sure. I mean, that that's absolutely the case. But I think m- more than that, really, I, you know, one writes in different voices, depending on the, mm. um, the task at hand. And um, there is a, in, in a sense, I had given up one voice that I had as the chief art critic of the times, to do this thing that I was doing as a columnist um, in Europe. And there is a a kind of opportunity to write in a certain voice and in a certain way to actually function as an advocate and an activist sometimes even um, uh, as a critic, especially in this field um, that I think was the thing that uh, also drew me to it. But um, on two other ways, I think fundamentally the, the job um, is very special and very important for the reasons you touch on. One is that if, if I think if you do the job properly, you, you write, as it were, from the level of the curb and the level of 30,000 feet. So you have to write, you know, thoughtfully about what's happening, uh, you know, on, with the, the way buildings actually work and the way uh, streets work and neighborhoods work and, um, and sometimes literally what's happening on the curb. Um, but you also have to be able to pull back and uh, write in a in a much sort of more um, synoptic way about about cities and about the meaning of these um, design related uh, or urban uh, urban related issues. So I, that's an opportunity that's that's very particular to this. But more than that, I think. Um, you know, when you say that a lot of the designers you've talked to, um, you know, feel like that's that's what they do, I, I would put it this way. Beyond that, I think there's a way of, you know, one of the reasons I have so much respect and, and interest in architects and designers is because of the way architects and designers have to essentially think. They have to think synthetically. They have to um, often work collaboratively. They, they have to understand multiple perspectives. They need to, you know, produce something that has a function and a use value um, for, right. not for their client, but hopefully, uh, or clients, but hopefully beyond that as well. And that kind of thinking, I think, is, is also at the heart of really good criticism and it's it's what is needed to have a healthy public conversation um, mm-hmm. about how we build things, including not just um, uh, buildings or design things, not just um, right. you know, ma- magazines, yeah. but also 
cities and societies. I want to talk about that more in a second, but I want to go back to something that you said earlier about how kind of culture or the discourse can sometimes have these these sort of radical swings or, or the pendulum can kind of move in different directions. And I, I think, you know, when you were an art critic, you really kind of championed looking at artists who are outside of, uh, you know, all the artists that you would expect in the New York Times. And I think you've continued that with your your role as architecture critic and really kind of um, cast a wide net in what you write about. And I'm curious how you think about that, knowing that your job is to be the architecture critic at the New York Times in a position that has only been held by a few people who, uh, some more controversial than others, mm-hmm. um, how you thought about where you, where you wanted to kind of continue work that they, that your predecessors had started and then where you thought you could bring something different. Yeah. You know, I mean, listen, I, I, in different ways admire all my predecessors <laughs> and, um, you know, I grew up reading Ada Louise and, uh, yeah. and I, I, you know, I, I admire her work, uh, now and I admire her for all sorts of reasons and was very, um, grateful and, and, um, honored to be her become her friend and to, to have her support so um you know i i i'm not re- reinventing the wheel i think ada louise did a lot of invention and not not just ada louise of course um yeah i mean i i think you know you're asking really a couple of separate questions but one of them is about how one uses the pulpit of the times to to or, or <clears throat> let's let's say to mix metaphors, you know, turns the spotlight that onto one or another person or project or thing because it's a pretty powerful instrument that mm-hmm. spotlight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I think it was very useful to me to have gone through those years learning um, how how to use the instrument of the times um, constructively and and um, mm. and thoughtfully. I hope um, as an art critic. Because um, that, you know, there's a couple of issues here. W- one is what I might personally like or dislike, my, my taste in something. I learned partly as an art critic, too, that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing to keep an open mind because your tastes will change. They should right. if, you, if you have any sense of um, self-preservation <laughs> or just if you keep an open eye. And, and so one's taste at that moment is not necessarily interesting. It's the articulation of why something is important right. yeah. that is really the job of the critic, I think. And so I, uh, and, and more than that, it's a question of what, um, what questions are being answered by the project that you are focusing on or the person you are focusing on. If you change the list of questions, Mm-hmm. Um, and and change the priorities. Therefore, you will get a different set of people or projects than you would if the questions were different. Um, mm-hmm. There are certain questions to which the answer is going to be Frank Geary and Zaha Hadid. <laughs> right. There are a right. bunch of questions that to which th- the answers will be a whole different set of people um, who only almost incidentally share a professional. <laughs> <laughs> um, affiliation with um, Zaha and, and Frank Gehry. And, 
So, you know, I think for me, it was really a question of asking different questions, trying to trying to give that spotlight to people and issues who would be able to, which I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but I think what's key here is that in so doing, one is suggesting that this is important. I think people right. want, it sounds simple, but people want to understand what it is that the priorities should be. So if you dignify something like, let's say, you know, the quality of public housing or, mm-hmm. or uh, civic architecture um, uh, or uh, landscape design mm-hmm. or, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's an endless list of things, mm-hmm. then people, I think readers um, and the public broadly will begin to think those things must have value and meaning. And th- that is really, I think, using, you know, the the job um, in the most um, in the most constructive way. That it, which is not necessarily about my own, you know, personal taste. I, I wrote I wrote uh, a couple of days ago about the South Street yeah. Seaport, right, uh, and a, the proposal to by SOM to build a building on on the parking lot there. As I said, and uh, in the article, you know, is, is this a work of architecture with a capital A? No, <laughs> certainly not. Uh, you, you know, it, does that mean nonetheless that it is worth attention and does it raise a lot of issues about our society and the way cities are built and, and also communities work and all that sort of thing and um, about the role of a lot of architecture, probably the vast majority of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a choice. How how do you think about that choice? This is such an interesting, uh, a, a, such an interesting thing for me to think about, and, and especially for you at a place like the New York Times, thinking about making those choices between, um, and and this is perhaps where it's different than than the art world, also where you can talk about the the things that are interesting to the profession or to the you know to the the people who are interested in architecture and you have the star architects and you have the, the, the big kind of branded buildings that everybody wants to talk about. But then you also have these, whether that's public housing, whether that's uh, kind of urban design or, or, or some sort of development that maybe is less flashy, but is also important. And you are one person who can't write about everything. How do you, how do you weigh those you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you weigh those options to think about this is the thing that I need to spend my time on? I mean, I think the other great benefit that I have and, um, you know, the, a dwindling number of people who write for general interest publications about um, about architecture and design is is that the audience is not exclusively professionals. Right. Um, and this is important because, um, especially if if, you have the illusion, as I do, that there's a certain missionary quality to this, that you want, mm-hmm. hopefully, to have some effect in the conversation, the public conversation, then the the point is that, it, and essentially, the, the, the paper, in my case, is a kind of um, public square. It's a, it's a common mm-hmm. ground mm-hmm. for a lot of people who would, uh, who, who have an interest or potentially have an interest in a subject, 
but might not know each other. They might be in siloed uh, communities. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I came back to uh, New York, I was asking around about things. And one thing I asked about was Penn Station, which I hadn't followed for a while. Penn Station was a mess and nothing had happened. And one thing I realized was that this was partly because architecture people talked to themselves and, and they were talking, uh, they were having a conversation that was considered to be sort of irrelevant and, <laughs> and a feat compared to the conversation among people in the transit industry and people in the community were having yet a third conversation. And there were a lot of different agencies, federal, national, I mean, and state and local and private and whatever. None of these people were talking to each other so that if you could somehow write in a way that addressed the fact that you were where they all existed, that there was, <laughs> there was something here that they all should be concerned about or they all are, and there might be a common cause, you might actually get something done. And, um, and so, you know, it's a little different than writing, let's say, as I did my first article about a, a subsidized housing project, which is to say a, something like that is extremely important to the city and has as much dignity and effect on a community potentially as any, um, you know, designer building. In this case, it's saying, here's the, here's this thing that actually millions of people are interested in. They just may not have realized that they have this shared concern. And that informs a lot of the choices I make. And that was certainly true in the case of the South street seaport, where the issues have to do with, you know, an increasingly troubling polarization um, between, um, which, you know, NIMBYs and, um, and often tenant activists who are also concerned about any development. And then on the other hand, you have, um, you know, YIMBYs and, and, uh, developers and the conversation has become extremely toxic. It's not a new conversation exactly, but it has entered a fairly toxic period. And so it's useful, I think, in a broad sense to, um, look at examples of places where the question arises. What is our priority? Is it to build the most extraordinary building? Is it to preserve things for the sake of preservation? Is it the priorities of the neighborhood? Is there a larger priority for the city? And what are those priorities? So you can find these things which are fundamentally architectural on some level, but are really uh, questions that open up architecture uh, appropriately. Um, to yeah. the to the world at large, I I would love to hear you talk more about that because something I've been thinking about a lot, and this relates to to a lot of the writing you did around Penn Station and, and Madison Square Garden, um, and you also did a, a recent piece on on prisons and whether architects should should be designing prisons. And something I think about a lot is we often think of the critic or criticism as responding to something and i'm also interested in the other side of that where where the critic is the one who is starting the conversation uh who is is maybe not responding to a building or or something but is kind of looking at it and saying this is actually what we should be talking about or why aren't we thinking about this how do you think about that and how do you think about uh kind of writing not just writing a review of a building or right. whatever, but actually saying like, this is an issue that, that I think, you know, we should be talking about. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a certain number of things which um, I um, 
I should write about. I, <laughs> I think I, I, um, you know, I'm obliged almost to write about, and and that's fine. I mean, uh, when Moynihan Station opened, uh, speaking of Penn Station, you know, at the beginning of this year, um, it it was a you know something that I think was appropriate for me to do. But especially in my role, you know, as you say, there's one of me, and um, there are a million things that happen every day. The, the whole act of being a critic in this position is triage. I mean, almost everything goes by the wayside. I personally have felt, um, and th- the reasons for this have to do with me and have, and the years I've been a critic, I'd so come to a certain feeling about this job, but also about the changing nature of the publication for which I work, which is, a, you know, it is a New York publication, but it is now a global publication too. And so the choices of how my resources are spent has, is not just what is the next thing that's happening. I have to go out and review it. There has to be some reason why um, that, that is happening. But that said, you're, you're right. I, I view this job more as um, my trying to set, I don't mean to sound pompous about this, but to but yeah, to sort of spark a conversation, to right. set an agenda, to choose things which are um, not necessarily the next thing, but ought to be, you know, maybe the next thing. Um, I, th- I think that's, it's the opportunity of this job. I will just say when I was the chief art critic, most of my work, and this was one reason I probably rebelled against it, <laughs> was was kind of being, you know, I, I've used this before. It's like a hamster on the wheel. Another show opens right. uh, at the Met or, you know, the Louvre or something. I, I got to go do it. And there's a pleasure to that and a value, I think, to it as well. But that can't be done in this field. And and to me, that's that's liberating. You mentioned the New York Times being a New York publication, but also being a global publication. I'm curious how you think about the audience. This goes back to something you said earlier about that you get to write for people who are not in the profession. Do you have a sense, do you have an audience that you're thinking about when you're writing, especially when you're writing about something international or, or something where where maybe a large percentage of the, I shouldn't assume when I say this, uh, you know, maybe you're writing about a building that a large percentage of, of your readership will not see or versus something in New York where perhaps they are. How do you think about who you're writing for? Yeah, it's an interesting and complicated question. I think it's fair to say that overwhelmingly the readers uh, will never see um, the thing that I'm writing about. Um, Mm. And, you know, I've done a lot of reporting from around the world. And so I, you know, much of what I've done has not been for the particular local audience. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think what you're writing for in general, uh, look, it varies. Uh, the seaport, I just can't keep coming back to this one thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Is a day ago. I mean, obviously there's a local audience for that, but it's my job, I think, to uh, quite local, but it's my job to um, write about it in a way that somehow pertains to other um, places and therefore to readers who might be in other places and read this and, and feel there's a relevance mm-hmm. uh, for them about this too. Um, and then to write about it, uh, you know, broadly and clearly enough and, and hopefully interestingly well enough that an audience quite far afield will be attracted to it. 
Um, I, it's hard to give you a very specific answer because it depends on the circumstance. But let's just say that, um, you know, one of the challenges of writing for the Times is that you're writing for an audience of people who are professionals and therefore almost inevitably know more than you do. And you have to <laughs> mm-hmm. about a given circumstance. And, you, you know, you do have to somehow um, write for them with enough both humility and authority that it's relevant to them but right. but you are not writing just for them um i think again i'll get back to this there, there is something about um the nature of as i said before about the times that is that is um relates to the to the profession of design itself which is something like this there is an understanding that designers and architects have about um, the products of these fields, which is different, obviously, than what a general audience might have. But the but the products, and nonetheless, have to speak to a larger audience than just fellow uh, designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's considered one of the great, you know, virtues I think um, of these fields is that they aren't uh, insular. They're not. Right. Um, they're not so much about insiders and outsiders. That that is, in fact, much more the nature of the art world, for instance. Right. Right. Um, and that is that comes uh, with costs, both literal financial <laughs> implications, but also costs. I think, in terms of um, the sense of um, the the lack of interest, or even the feeling of alienation that many people uh, have. Um, from the art world yeah you know this makes me think about how over the last 10 maybe 15 years definitely over the course of your tenure as as architecture critic how the public consciousness around design and architecture seems to have grown and that design i I don't say i'm i'm not saying this with pride (laughs) design is is like cool now you know what i mean Uh um yeah and and there's like flashy netflix documentaries about architects now uh and so there's this like public awareness about about architecture and design for better and for worse there's also over the course of your tenure we've seen the rise of social media and how how instagram and i just read something yesterday about how tiktok and architecture intersect uh we've seen that change over the last 10 years how on your end has your job changed since you became architecture critic to now what other big changes have there been whether that's in process whether that's in subject matter whether that's in just the discourse itself let me begin by saying i think obviously the you know explosion of social media and and other and various platforms um, has been a challenge for traditional you know journalism but also offered, you know, a, a plethora of new opportunities. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, for me at the Times, it has been um, incredibly exciting and liberating to work with um, teams of, um, you know, digital graphics uh, wizards mm-hmm. um, who, um, who I've done a lot of projects with. Yeah. Um, because... Um, there are so many different ways to tell a story now and for people to absorb it. And those ways often 
uh, are much more true to the ways in which people experience architecture and design. Right. right. So there, there's a, there's a, you know, that has been really a, a, a huge, huge change. And of course, most of our readers are online, um, and so our focus is on, um, you know, on a, a digital audience. Um, I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, I think because that audience has access to us um, in every you know corner of the world. I, I should just say very um, quickly that I, I the new endeavor I'm undertaking. I've raised money and I'm starting a nonprofit at the New York Times called Headway, right. which is focused on large-scale global problems, and it will exist outside the paywall of the Times because I mm. I thought you know if we do have this extraordinary instrument. Um, of the platform of the Times, um, uh, I, we should be able to reach beyond subscribers if we're going to uh, try to have healthy, constructive conversations around big challenges um, globally. And we can do that now. So, uh, right. if somebody has just internet access, they, um, in theory, uh, will have access to to Headway. Um, but you know, I think you're right that that probably is. Um, a wider audience for design than there has ever been. I was trying to remember when Gary Huspet, um, with whom I've done projects, made that film called Helvetica. Oh yeah, that was uh, 2007. Yeah, when you I, mentioned I Netflix. 2007, I, 2008, yeah. There you go. So um, so it's, there's been films about design right. uh, going back there. But, the, right. um, but uh, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of, I know you have talked to many, I'm sure there are a lot of, one of the tropes of, all forms of uh, criticism is that criticism is dying and right. abandoned. Right. And this is true in art. It's true in music. It's true in film. It's true. In, uh, I don't mean to diminish the significance of that and, um, and, and the meaning of the jobs and it's all that's right. But on the other hand, of course, it's also true. And I think that's what you're right. saying, that there are a proliferation of places in which mm -hmm. people can um, do stuff. And mm -hmm. on the whole, I think that's, you know, just just fantastic yeah it, i agree you know it has created a, a much more robust um you know chaotic but more robust conversation uh, than when it was just a louise basically mm -hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah i mean i i agree with that i i also you know and have been guilty i will admit of, of talking about criticism dying or that that design criticism or architecture criticism's uh heyday is behind us but i've really come to to disavow that yeah that feeling and feel like in in some ways it's more vibrant than it's ever been for all of these things that you're talking about and it's interesting to think about how that has perhaps opened up the conversation to to more people and you know we mentioned like starkitects or you know and frank gary before and i i think in some ways this this bigger conversation has allowed us to move past that conversation yeah where we are starting to kind of talk about it and what it actually means for us to live in these environments instead of to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation just thinking about them as sculptural objects you know right yeah listen i i need to hasten to add from my extraordinary privileged position i do not want to make it seem like the the genuine challenges <laughs> that exist for people who want to do this for a living are not very real and i right. totally understand um and this is this is a serious and, and big issue how can we have a 
you know, uh, how can we promote really, you know, good criticism? I would say that there are just so many uh, interesting people out there writing about architecture that, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether or not some newspapers have, have uh, you know, given up and, and magazines too have given up on um, general interest magazines on architecture critics. Yeah. Nonetheless, there are quite quite a lot of people I, I admire out there who are doing this regularly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the question always is for for those of us who do this is, you know, what um, what what is your like purpose here? Who are you writing for? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the proliferation of different um, you know platforms has has allowed people to choose. Um, and I think that's that's a good thing. I do think that architecture, and here I'll sort of flip, I do think that architecture still needs, for a general architecture and design too, in general, needs to overcome a public sense that it is a occupation by and for yeah. and talked about only among the privileged few. And that is partly the the role that I have tried to assume for myself to make people understand that it's central to our conversation um, about our society and society at large and the climate and so forth. Uh, And so are other people doing that as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that is incumbent upon those people who care about these things um, to realize that that this is an uphill struggle because there is a a built-in sense that this is a you know largely white privileged rich person's enclave. Um, right. So how can we broaden you know the conversation to make people understand that it's actually central to their own lives? Exactly. I talked to um, I talked to Justin Davidson probably a year and a half ago at, at New York Magazine, and he said something interesting that I think you would probably relate to and agree with. Um, you know, you can write about music or art or, you know, a book, and that's easy to ignore. You know, you cannot listen to the music, you cannot go to the show. But architecture for a lot of us, you can't ignore that you can't. uh, Many of these things, you know, we're just so affected by that we have to kind of be engaged with them. And that that is the role of the critic then is to help not explain or I guess kind of explain, but also to help understand and talk about why all of these decisions matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. There, there's a funny um, paradox because, of course, a lot of people feel that, you know, the, the restaurant critic, the film critic or the music critic or whatever are going to have a much more direct and, and right. uh, tangible impact. Um, but I actually think, um, you know, that the role of the architecture critic and those of us who, who write it more broadly about design are, is much more... Um, uh, is much weightier. Right. First of all, it can have an impact on the progress of ongoing projects um, and political decisions. Um, but more than that, you know, it, it is a sort of about the way in which we construct the the world we build, the the world we are building yeah. to live in, and people, I think. This is what I, I guess I'd add to what you say that Justin said. People don't necessarily consciously realize the extent to which this is embedded in their daily lives. 
And so we also need to make them more aware of the architecture and design in their lives, in their in their line of vision that through which they pass or mm-hmm. walk through every day, but also their ability to have some um, to play some role right. in in its uh, you know in its future and in the future architecture and and urban design and everything else that we that we decide to move forward with. Yeah, I love that. I have two more questions uh, to to wrap up. And this actually kind of relates to what you were just talking about. What are you interested in right now? Or what are the subjects or topics that you're thinking about that you want to either write more about or that you think, you know, are interesting in this, in this kind of dialogue, this architecture and design dialogue right now? Yeah. God, that's such a long list of things. So some of, <laughs> some of the stuff that I'm, you know, focused on in Headway, which has as an incredibly broad, um, yeah. Of, Ambit, the, the the world we are building. That's why I probably have used that phrase <laughs> a couple of times, as as opposed to you know how to fix the electoral college or you know the meaning of Brexit <laughs> for the euro or something. Um, so you know there are. Listen, I've written about uh, climate and cities and mm-hmm. um, and environmental issues and and um, and I've written about issues of equity and housing and those things are always um, very much on my mind. Um, you know, at this very moment, a uh, little snapshot. You know, I'm 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 uh, doing something with the Daily on, uh, which is a podcast of ours mm-hmm. at times, um, uh, on offices. Oh, um, interesting. And um, I'm. Uh, this is an awkward question to ask a journalist because before he's done these things publicly, one is not intended to generally tell people what you're doing. I understand. Uh, let's just say that there are also some. Um, re- really sort of large scale uh, uh, things, which I'm just beginning to uh, dip my oh, toe into. But, uh, but I'll just, uh, to give you another weaselly part of that answer, I, I, on, on my sort of to-do list are a million things that are, um, most of which don't get done, but are of really different scales. And this is what I continue to um, love and find challenging about the job, that they could concern a parking lot or a little right. park somewhere or, uh, you know, where they could concern homelessness and, right. uh, right. um, you, you know, or, 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 uh, criminal justice and the criminal justice system we build, um, and the ability to sort of, I said this earlier, you know, to go from the curb to 30,000 yeah. feet, yeah. I, I think is, is the reason I like, uh, you know, I find this job, um, so challenging and, um, and therefore so creative. Um, yeah. So that that's it. It's trying to balance yeah. those scales. Uh, yeah, I get it. I, I also love that that in a way circles back to the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about wanting to kind of rethink what architecture writing could be or expanding the definitions of architecture, which I think um, you've done a great job of over your tenure. My last question, I just want to know what you're reading right now. Oh, uh, oh that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, God, I always have a long stack of things, and this question is so hard to answer. Uh, well, um, so I'm uh, reading Mark Reisner's book called Cadillac Desert, which is mm. on the American West and water, um, because I'm, um, that's one of the subjects I'm, I'm, I've been pursuing for a little while. Um, I, you know, I've had to put off a, a book. Um, I, I got a chance during COVID to to write a book through the times essentially. And I'm mm. 
finishing up um, on walks around the city, which was fun. It oh, felt right. creative. But essentially, right. I had to put aside a book on Notre Dame in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been looking back through some, um, trying to, to catch up again on uh, the Notre Dame literature um, and just on, on Paris stuff. And um, so I've been, yeah, reading stuff around Gothic architecture and reading uh, Richard Cobb, Paris and Elsewhere, and uh, Graham Robb's Parisians and, you know, stuff like that, um, which is fun. I've been doing stuff on, um, looking at stuff on, uh, as I said, on criminal justice. And so um, I was uh, looking up Locking Your Own by James Foreman, <clears> which I hadn't gotten around to. Um, I'm not really giving you design things, though, am I? That's okay. No, that's all right. I, I didn't say design books are you reading. Just, right. just anything that you're reading. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's a start. Um, that's a great... And also a book called Evicted, which is... Uh, oh, yeah. A couple yeah. people have mentioned that on the show. Um, the walking tours that you've been doing over the last year during COVID, that's being turned into a book? Yeah. Um, oh, that's I, great. I publisher Penguin Press. Um, so I... Um, is, is putting it out, I think with, it'll actually come out in 2022 at this point. So I've been doing some other things for that and, uh, um, uh, you know, obviously writing some, yeah. somewhat a lengthier introduction. Um, but that was great. And that was a wonderful sort of education for me and a, f- a way of somehow trying to turn something that was so um, uh, not just obviously frightening um but also um such a challenge for all of us mm-hmm. um whose whose normal way of doing work was interrupted to to try mm-hmm. to trade, create something that would be um useful to try to try to see a crisis as an opportunity yeah, um, yeah. which is what everyone i think was who was privileged enough not to have lost their job and or to suffer some health crisis which knock on wood so far is the case um you know, uh, had this, how do you, how do you make this an opportunity, um, to do something? And that, yeah. that's, that was, uh, my little, um, modest contribution. Yeah. It's a great series and in a, an interesting way, thinking about it in the context of this conversation is really emblematic of, of, you know, the kind of critical project that you've set out for yourself and that it, that it is looking at New York from all of these different angles and, and kind of understanding how we, how we move through this city. And is a, uh, actually turned out to be a great way to end this, end this conversation. Michael, I am a, a longtime reader and a big fan. So this was so interesting to talk to you about how you think about all of this stuff. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. It's, thank you for the kind words. This episode was recorded on April 29th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>